The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 28 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 25th of February, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I have the honor in speaking with a captain that I shared a flight sequence with a few weeks ago. Listening to the tales he shared about his journey in aviation was an amazing experience. All of us professional aviators have our unique stories to tell about how we progressed through the challenges that come with this profession. But his story stands out. From an apprenticeship at a company that later became British Aerospace to Air Atlanta Icelandic, he has survived multiple furloughs and recalls, mergers and bankruptcies, and countless interviews. In addition to having the patience to answer my barrage of questions about his journey, he is also one of the most kind and personable individuals that I have come across. He has agreed to share a little bit about his journey here today on Squawk Ident. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Today, we are very fortunate to have a very special guest join me in the Aviator Studios via the magic of the internet. I actually had the opportunity to fly with my next guest a few weeks ago. He was on a TDY from Miami to Los Angeles for the month of February, and luckily, crew scheduling and all of their wisdom decided to pair the two of us together to fly the first two days of a four-day trip together. Now, for those of you that uh, didn't catch some of the previous shows where I explained TDY, just a quick update on that. A temporary duty displacement, or TDY, is when a pilot uh, is at a particular base, usually either uh, voluntary or involuntarily. They get selected for TDY, which means they get uh, transported from their home base and they get borrowed out. To, uh, to another base. In this case, he was a Miami-based captain 
on the Airbus, and they needed more captains in Los Angeles. So they offered a TDY displacement for the month of February, and he signed up for it. And luckily for us, uh, we got to fly together. And that's how the TDY basically in a nutshell works. As we do on the flight deck when, you know, you're flying with a new pilot that you just met, uh, we got to talking. And it didn't take very long for us to realize that uh, we had some interest in each other's journeys. And, you know, I found his journey just tremendous. And he is just really taking uh, a huge inspirational pathway in his aviation career. The trip sequence that we flew together started out with an early morning sign-in in Los Angeles. It had about, uh, I think it was a 6.30 a.m. departure, and it was the first leg was at an L.A. to Phoenix flight. There, we swapped aircraft and flight attendant crew, and we did that by walking over to the next terminal over, and we got on an airplane that was bound for Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, and back. In just three short flight segments, I felt very comfortable flying with such a class act individual. He agreed to take part in the podcast, and I feel very grateful to him for spending the afternoon discussing his journey. His story starts out in Oldham, England, where he attended grammar school. After high school, he was scheduled to take his national exams, but decided to skip the finals. Instead, he found himself an apprenticeship for a company named Hawker Sidley. That company later went on to becoming the British Aerospace Company. While continuing to work at British Aerospace, he was able to continue his education, first with a study in aeronautical engineering, to then a study in mechanical engineering, and later completing his education degree in electrical engineering all the while working his way up from apprenticeship positions to a tradesman and later a foreman, where he started working on building the wing components to MSN-001, the very first manufactured model of the Airbus A320. He later found himself earning a position as a project manager and works director for the company. In 1991, he decided to leave that all behind to come to the U.S., to learn and to earn his U.S. pilot's licenses. He figured, I've been building the damn things. Maybe it's time I start flying them too. And so he did. His journey includes flying for Transstates, TWA, Air Atlanta Atlantic, Sandpiper Regional, as we call here at the Squawk Ident Podcast, Silverjet, GoJet, Legacy Airlines, Copa Airlines, OK Airlines, and finally, in 2012, back to Legacy Airlines again, where he is now a Miami-based A320 family captain. He holds type ratings in the DC-9, the 737, the 75-76, the ERJ-145, the EMB-170, the CRJ-700, and the Airbus. It is my honor in welcoming to Squawk Ident, Captain Steve Ash. Captain, welcome to the show. Hey. <laughs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, when we flew together uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we, you know, we, we always go through this period 
where we introduce ourselves and the cockpit. And by the end of the first leg together, we usually get a kind of an idea of, you know, people's backgrounds and how they got into aviation. And I found sure. myself absolutely mesmerized as you explained your history and your journey through an aviation career. And it's been just so impressive. Um, and I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today out of your schedule to give us all a little taste of your journey of how you started out in aviation and how you inevitably ended up as an Airbus captain at Legacy Airlines. Sure. I'm, I'm glad you invited me to do it. Thank you very much. Um, so tell me, take me back a little bit. I mean, I think one of the first questions that any aviator will ask a fellow aviator is, how did you get into aviation? What sparked that initial seed? And what can you tell me about your particular start? Well, my father before me worked at the same company and served an apprenticeship building the Avril Vulcan. And as he progressed uh, through management, he would take me to uh, the factory on a Saturday morning when it wasn't busy, and I'd get to see the aircraft being built. He would also take me to Manchester Airport uh, to see the planes taking off. And every year at British Aerospace Woodford, as it is now, there would be an air show, and we got to go there. Oh. And so, from a young a young age, I've been around airplanes one way or another. And I think I told my dad, one day I'm going to draw white lines in the sky. <laughs> and I, I remember I remember that time. But as I progressed through my younger teenage years and became a little bit less interested in school, my dad said the only pilot I would ever make would be a pilot there, pilot here, muck shifter. Oh. Um, but yeah, we got past that and uh, got the job as an apprentice. And that was uh, a change for me because I was getting the wrong way up until 16. I just fell in love with the idea of being around airplanes and building them, studied hard. And uh, as you said, the company looked after me and promoted me and sent me to college. And the rest is history. So excited to have been part of MSN One Airbus and more excited now to be actually flying that airplane. Yeah. And, you know, how did that pro progression work? I mean, so you went through high school and in England, you know, at the end, you were telling me how you're supposed to take these uh, national exams and that yeah. is an exam in like what your your strong points are in education and they kind of help pave the way for your future in terms of a career and you decided to skip that all together that couldn't have been a a very you know, good topic for you and your parents i mean what how did that progression work into an apprenticeship well at the time um my father was doing his thing and my mother was trying to look after three uh, children, one particularly being unruly, that was me. Uh, at that time, I really didn't care. Um, uh, one of the teachers at school gave me a good recommendation um, to get the job at British Aerospace, as it turned out to be. And that was a turning point in my life. Um, he stuck his head out, gave me a recommendation I really didn't deserve. And after I got the job, I pretty much vowed I wasn't going to let him down. So, in actual fact, many years later, I traced him down in England when I was at uh, Air Atlanta and uh, called him up and thanked him for what he did. Uh, if it hadn't have been for that uh, gesture, I don't know what I would be doing today. I don't think I'd be flying. Wow. So that's uh, it. There's, you know, the choices we make, the opportunities yep. that we have. Uh, they kind of pave the way for the future for us. Uh, and in aviation, 
if someone gives you an opportunity, you take it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you ended up as an apprentice. What was your first real job there at uh, at Sidley? Well, my first real job, um, I went into the uh, tool, uh, we call the tool and die portion of the company, where we built the tools that would build the airplanes. But I really didn't like that. So at 19, I converted from working in the tool room to working on the fuselage and the wings of the uh, British Aerospace ATP and the fuselage of the uh, uh, British Aerospace 146. And I did that for about three years before I was promoted to technical foreman um, over part of the Airbus manufacturing section. While still going to college and playing lots of soccer and trying to raise a family as well. Yeah. It was a busy time. Yeah, I bet. So, you know, the, the company became British Aerospace at what point? About 1979. And prior to it being Hawker Sidley, it was Avro. A.V. Rowan Company that built oh, okay. the Avro Lancaster. Yeah. So. Yeah, the Avro. We, we affectionately, yeah. uh, I don't know if it was the Lancaster, I think uh, the jet that was flown here in the U.S. Uh, in the early 2000s, the Avro. That was we, the 146. The 146, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I met a pilot who uh, flew that, and he said, yeah, we don't have any engines on that aircraft, or it's only five APUs. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, I have a, an affinity for the Avro. I always think of that. Yeah. So so you ended up continuing your education uh, in aeronautical engineering. That's not an easy thing to do. Aeronautical engineering, you know, you say that to someone, they think, you know, you're a rocket scientist. I mean, how difficult was that to achieve, especially at a young age? Well, in, in fairness, the engineering side of it was more to do with building the airplanes and how the systems work. So the engineering uh, design side was not part of, of that educational program. Um, it was basically trying to make sure that I knew all the laws of the land when it came to what bolts went into something, how to rivet, what the quality requirement was, how a hydraulic pump worked, how was the correct way to install such things. Um, and that I didn't really get into the engineering side until I went to the mechanical engineering school, mm. uh, and then got more into the design and development program. And then when we went to university at Manchester, I did the electronics and control degree. That was really where I would say the engineering became really difficult. Yeah. It, it turns out I was pretty good at math, so yeah. it was not too bad. Well, good. And and that was uh, quite a few years that you spent there. Do, were you ever flying at all during this time or just working on the airplanes? Just just either working on the airplanes or managing the production and projects at uh, either British Aerospace or Hyde Group. Hmm. Uh, yeah. My first flying lesson was in the United States, March 1991. Oh, wow. So, And you told me some pretty interesting stories about how, you know, the photo that you showed me first off of yes. the whole group there you and your your lab coat <laughs> it, was, yep. it was a wonderful uh, experience yeah. to see that and i thank you for that um but you were telling me a few stories that people had a little bit of a hard time because of your young age and your leadership position can you tell us a little bit well, about that yeah i mean after i was foreman and i became the project manager for the production side of airbus at manchester and as part of that, it was my job to make sure things were done at the time that was needed to be sent to Chester. Mm. Um, one of the sections I labeled the black hole because things would go in there and never come out. Yeah. 
And after, and after 18 months of complaining to the higher-ups at British Aerospace, I was called in one day and told in no uncertain terms that as of five minutes before I opened the door, I was in charge of the black hole and fix it. Um, so at 26 years old, I was in charge of um, three senior managers, 15 foremen, 450 operators. And the most junior foreman was uh, 10 years older than me, and the most junior manager was almost 20 years older than me and had a lot more experience in doing that job than I did. So it took about three or four months to win them over and, and show them that I was working on their behalf and giving them the tools to do the job they needed. And within 12 months, that group of guys did just a great job, had the thing put back together, everything was running on time. And uh, after that, I was offered the job as director of another company based on that, um, that success, really. Yeah. Did they ever change the name from Black Hole to something else? Well, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the joke amongst the foreman and the managers was it was called the Not Black Hole. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so you—that's quite an accomplishment, and, and especially at a young age, and being in a leader leadership position at a young age is is not easy. Um, and I, I do have a little experience. I think we talked about it as my yes, we did. at my tenure at Costco and having to manage hundreds of people in your twenties um, and people that are older than you that look at you like you know I could be your father or I could be your grandfather. Why, why are you talking to me? This yep. you shouldn't even be my boss right now. Um, so correct. it's always a challenge. Um, but I think it's those kind of challenges that once you get past them, you learn how to develop a confidence and an ability to speak with people regardless of their age, their status, um, or their background. And once you get past that and you really learn that crucial ability to just speak to people uh, and not you know, belittle them when you talk to them, that's a skill that really you can't teach. No. Um, you either have it or you don't have it. So you know, your ability to kind of get past all that has been a great story to hear. Well, I always thought that you should speak to people and not at them. And uh, you have to learn the ability to listen to what they've got to say and take it in. If you don't, you miss a lot of information. Yeah. So you ended up um, as a, a project manager and then a works director. Uh, and that works director position, you said you changed for another company. What, what company did you go to? Uh, there, was a, there was a company in the Manchester area that provided tools and uh, machining backup to British Aerospace. And the, one of the owners of the company, um, who it turns out was my mother's first boyfriend when she came over from Austria, um, de de yeah, decided that he wanted to get into the assembly of components for the aerospace industry based on if he could control the assembly, he could control the, the subparts of that and make more money. The downside was nobody at the company had ever put an airplane together. Oh. So uh, they contacted me and several months of negotiations over salary and terms and conditions. I, after 12 years at British Aerospace, I left to go and work for that company. Yeah. So working uh, for a, a, a third party company, still working correct. for basically British, British Aerospace. Aerospace yeah. yeah, that's correct. And what caused or sparked that initial thought that, okay, here you had a very good job. Yep. Uh, you had really your career progression paved out for you. All you had to do is keep you know, the car in the lane, basically, and you could have had a very comfortable life. 
and you decided, nah, you know, I, I want to fly these things. This is not, even though it's a good career progression, and you know, we kind of yeah. hinted on that earlier, uh, yeah. but you decided, hey, I want to fly airplanes. Yeah. What sparked that? Well, I think the spark had always been there. Um, I think for most of us, uh, we decided that we would like to fly airplanes at a young age. Um, I describe it as an itch that I couldn't scratch. And even though I'd failed several times to land a job at the RAF, at 18, I wasn't qualified. At 23, I was too old. At 26, I missed a British Airways uh, sponsorship scheme. And at that point, I thought I'd almost give up. But then uh, two years into the job at uh, being a works director, I had sufficient money put in the bank. And I went, it's time to go. It really is. It's either now or bemoan the day that I never made that decision. Yeah. So um, in the March of 91, I came over to do a solo course, soloed in nine hours. And in the first downwind on my own, I knew I was going back to quit my job. <laughs> and so I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so here, why did you choose the U.S. to do this? It, was it a financial reason or something else? Well, yeah, financial. It was actually much cheaper to uh, get all your licenses and time in the United States and then convert the license into a British uh, commercial license at the time. Um, and certainly quicker because the weather's so much better in the U.S. than it is in England. Yeah. So it was a, it was a matter of finances. Uh, experience, you got more experience for your money. And to do a 250-hour license in the United Kingdom with its inclement weather would probably have taken me five years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. And in the in the U.S., I managed to qualify in 18 months. Yeah. And so, where in the U.S. did you uh, take that first Discovery flight? Centralia, Illinois. Wow. Uh, and do you still remember he, that day? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was just like it was yesterday. I remember coming in on the plane, sitting at Lambert Airport, watching all the TWA planes land while I was at uh, Signature Aviation waiting for a Cessna 172 to pick me up. Mm -hmm. So they picked me up in a 172, took me over to Centralia. I spent a week there. And uh, so I went home, handed in my notice to my boss. And on July the 1st that year, I came back uh, pretty much for a full-time school at Centralia. Yeah. And how long did that school progression last for you? Well, <clears throat> I went from uh, zero to commercial license in five months. Wow. And part of the course was that you got your instructor ratings and became an instructor on the visa for the, uh, the flight school. Um, you got your time that way, and that built your time up to 1,500 hours. And then you did the ATPL uh, written and flight test. Um, and at that point, the plan initially, when I first came over, was to go go back to England. However, as the story goes, after about two months at the airport, I met my wife. Uh, we dated for two years, and when the time came to go home, um, I couldn't. So I've yeah. been here ever since. Yeah. And so um, that's it. Fell in love, not just with yep. aviation, but for the with the love of your life as well. Abs absolutely. Yeah. Still married, 27 years and going. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, that when you decided you couldn't go back to England, mm -hmm. you then, were you looking for employment at that point? Well, in the early 90s, it's about 93, 
Um, the requirement just to get an interview with even the regionals was a requirement to have over 2,000 hours and 500 hours multi. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a requirement to get that. And there was a, um, an air ambulance on-demand charter service out of Centralia that flew a Cessna 414 Alpha. Ah. And I managed to blag my way um, onto that certificate. Um, did that for about a year. And that gave me the time and experience to start applying for the airlines. My first interview was with Great Lakes. Didn't go well. Uh, and then a few months later, I interviewed both at, at uh, Trans States Airlines and American Eagle Airlines at that time. And Trans States was the first one to offer me a job. I could drive. It was based in St. Louis. So it all worked out. Yeah. And do you remember that uh, you mentioned that uh, interview at Great Lakes didn't go well? Was that uh, something you'd like to share about the mistakes that were made, or how did it not go well? Well, I, I think just from a pure professional uh, standpoint, I don't think that uh, the chief pilot at the time was treating the applicants to the job very well. It was mm. At the time when most of the regional airlines was a hostile training environment, and a hostile interview in Byron. Yeah. And I just think it was that time in history where that was uh, the way it went. Yeah. For, fortunately, we've got past that. So, I mean, we, I mean, we both work for regional airlines where um, if you fail, you're fired. If you do this, you're fired. And yes. everything you do, unless it's perfect, you're fired. Uh, yeah. Even if you're doing really well, you could do seven great simulators and the eighth one you're so nervous because you might get fired. And you don't do well, and you get fired. Right. Uh, I'm 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 happy that that the legacy airlines we don't do that, and I'm happy to see the regional airlines have changed the ways. Yeah, I mean that's a a topic that's very popular. Um, and and future shows of Squawk Ident will feature yeah. uh the training methods that today's pilot can expect, and how yep. it really does differ. I remember when I was you know, working for that big box retailer, you know, yeah. again, having my, my career path, all I had to do is keep it in the lanes and I, I could have yep. retired very comfortably. And then getting into an environment where you're going through flight training. And at a time I interviewed a lot of people. I asked family, I asked friends, Hey, do you know anybody that's a pilot that I can interview? Because I'm thinking about changing careers. And I wasn't just going to, you know, pull the trigger and, and sell the house and the cars and the picket fence and and move to, you know, some dinky little apartment in Phoenix to go to a flight school because, hey, I want to be a pilot. I, I did my research. Um, and I interviewed quite a few people. I interviewed a, a cargo pilot. I interviewed a very senior captain at one of the major airlines. I think it was United at the time uh, through yeah. a family friend. And, you know, they all had different theories on what I should do. Uh, one said, hey, just find a, a buddy that's working on your private with you and go buy an airplane. And sit there at the airport and watch the airplane all day long and people come up to you and once you get a CFI you can take them up and get lessons and in a few years you can have it done and and but you know the cost of all that especially a post 9-11 environment and economic environment it just was not feasible no. um so yeah the way I think even you went through when you did and the way I went through when I did even post 9-11 completely different than the way it is today so, That's correct. Um, you know, it's interesting to hear uh, how certain people start their career progression. Um, and I thank you for sharing yours with us. Uh, so your, your 
first interview didn't go so well. And I, I kind of experienced a little bit of that too with some of the interviews that I had the, the, the privilege of sitting in on. Um, yes. But that ended up at a position at Transstates. Correct. How did that interview go? Was... Well, the interview at Transstates was actually quite good. Um, Mark Hoffman, who was the uh, chief pilot at the time, I believe, uh, was very entertaining. He took a look at my resume and reading all the experience I had. And I think his quote was, what the hell are you doing in here? Yeah. I said, hey, you know, I've got to fly airplanes. You should understand that. You're a pilot. And a week later, he offered me the job. Yeah. So, yeah. And how long did you stay at Transstate? I was there just 13 months. Mm. Uh, I just got my command upgrade class. And unfortunately for them, it was the same day as my new hire class at TWA. Uh-huh. And TWA must have been a very exciting step oh. to go from, you know, yep. private pilot, get your recent your ratings, your commercial, yep. your ATP written, and then turning into a, your trans states position at a regional in 13 months yep. to go from there to TWA. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. It, it was getting very heady. Um, not really believing that you could go from never having flown a plane to flying for a legacy airline in the United States in five years. Um, my plan was to do it by the time I was 40. That's, I would have thought that would have been a, a success. Um, fortunately, uh, one of my instructors through my private years uh, in Centralia was a training um, flight engineer at TWA at the time. And uh, he helped me make sure I had the right exams passed and uh, that my letter went to the right person. Mm. So again, you know, I had a little bit of help. I took advantage of that. And uh, yeah, TWA was an amazing place to work. Uh, first class training, first class flying. Um, everybody seemed to be pulling together. So I had a, a wonderful experience at Transworld Airlines. And was that on the DC-9 on your initial? Initial was 727 engineer. Oh, okay. um, so I did that for a while. I ended up being a TWA flight engineer uh, training uh, in the simulator as well as a check engineer. Mm -hmm. And then went to the DC-9 MD-80 and then the 767 where I did uh, started my international flying. Now you got to tell me, I, I've seen videos over the years where they mock how the flight engineer would always make fun of the first officer and give the first officer just the hardest time in the world and treat the first officer like just total crap. Is this true? Is this what flight engineers did? If you were a professional flight engineer with seniority, <laughs> you could get away with that. Yeah. Uh, most of us as flight engineers were trying to get into his seat. Um, so my my way was to actually encourage him to take the next next upgrade or change airplanes so there I could have go. his seat. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah no. but he did nothing. He just sat there. I did the walk around. I did the pre-flight. The captain did all the checklists. And the only time he did anything was when the captain said, gear up. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, yeah, I can understand, uh, you know, a little bit of the... Uh, Giving him a hard time and a little, maybe even yeah. a little animosity to like, what are you doing yeah. in that seat? <laughs> so, how long did that last at, at TWA? Well, American uh, bought TWA. TWA filed bankruptcy at the end of uh, 2000. And then, early in 2001, American Airlines put in a bid. And I think by April that year, 
uh, TWA became part of American Airlines. Yeah, and uh, and then you were furloughed because TWA was purchased by this company named American Airlines, and then an event happened nine eleven. That's correct. Like, what was it? How many weeks later? It was not very long. No, I mean, April and then September the 11th, uh, and shortly after that, the furloughs uh, began. I actually uh, left the company in March 2003. That's how long it took to get to my number. Hmm. And unfortunately, you know, it was that time where the total number of furloughees was around 3,000 at American Airlines. It was the highest number in the industry. Yeah. So, so that happened. You ended up yep. making a decision that well, you had to you had to support your family, you had to fly, you had to earn a living, and you yep. ended up going back overseas, back to England, and yes. uh, turned into a job to fly for Air Atlanta, Atlantic. How did that right. position come about? I mean, did you just apply and that happened, or well, well, they were advertising in uh, a weekly magazine called Flight International. And when I did a little bit of research on them, they were going through a huge expansion uh, using 76300s and 757s to uh, what's called ACMI, where they provide the airline, the crew, or the aircraft, the crew maintenance insurance. And you can rent the plane for a day or a month. You could lease it for years, and they'll paint it in your colors. Oh. So they were going through this huge expansion and getting planes all over the world, and they were desperate for uh, type rated crews. Um, I sent them an email and literally an hour later, I got a phone call from their hiring manager. We did the interview over the phone. And uh, the next day I got a faxed um, letter to the nearest shop where he wanted to send the job offer to. So within 24 hours of applying for the job, um, I had a class day in London for Air Atlanta. Wow. And so did you move uh, the whole family to London or did you just go there and do the training on your own? Um, I went on my own and did the training. And uh, Air Atlanta was very accommodating that every couple of months they would give me 10 days off to fly home to be with my family and my wife. And sometimes uh, my youngest daughter would fly to England and spend some time. They provided me with an apartment close to the airport. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So they, they would come over and stay with me several weeks. Uh, so we just made the best of it while I was over there. Yeah, almost uh, kind of like a vacation sporadically anytime for yes. your duration there. Yeah. yeah, That's amazing. And your children were able to experience going to London and, and hanging out with dad. That's correct. That, that yeah, the, the young one in particular. Yeah, the, the older two had got past the traveling things, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, Katie, the youngest one, she she came to England and we took her to one of the Greek islands. Uh, she got to go to Ireland and Scotland and uh, uh, Wales. So she got to do a little bit of traveling when she was younger. Yeah. So, and you couldn't just, you know, walk in and say, okay, I'm here now because you had FAA licenses. Uh, Correct. That process uh, took a little bit of time. And what was actually involved in that to get your JAA and Icelandic license conversions? Well, the Icelandic license was. Um, based on my FAA license. So I had to take two written exams for the Icelandic um, Civil Aviation Authority and take a uh, two flight test in the simulator. One was be what we call a operational experience type of ride, loft, and the other one was a, a proficiency check ride where you do the 
the necessary uh, V1 cuts, mm -hmm. circle to land, all the different ILS and other approaches. The JA, on the other hand, uh, was a monstrous undertaking. They required to take all 14 of their uh, written tests. Each one is 75 pounds just to sit each one and about $2,500 for the material. And then after you've done all that, uh, you take the flight test. Um, they allowed me to take it in the simulator without having to do some airline work in the in the pan because I already had that type rated. And uh, even though medical, their first issue medical was over a thousand dollars just to take the medical. Wow! So a lot of money, a lot of money, and a lot of effort to take the fourteen written exams. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever complain about paying what I pay for my first class <laughs> medical ever again. <laughs> <laughs> So, and how long did that last before you got the uh, the call? To... Well, it took it took around about uh, twelve months to get the uh, the written test done, mm -hmm. and then about four months to uh, arrange for the flight test in the simulator, and then four weeks after that, they issued the license in in London. So, uh, almost eighteen months from the onset of studying to finally getting the little green book that you get. So, was it really? Was it? Uh... Like you stopped flying in the U.S., and was it 18 months before you start flying again after all these tests, or were you flying in the interim? No, I was flying on the Icelandic side of the company. I see. So, so they had uh, Air Atlanta Icelandic, which with the Icelandic converted license, I could fly. And I had to wait 18 months before I could fly for the European division. Uh, where you could fly any aircraft uh, in any theater at any time. So you were limited to domestic in Iceland, and then once you got your JAA, then you could go international out of Iceland? Is that how it works? Well, it's, it's a company that was based in Iceland with Icelandic aircraft, but they were wet leasing them to British companies. So I was oh. flying for a British company in London for an Icelandic Very A little bit convoluted. Yeah. But once once I got the European license, uh, there was no restriction on what kind of registered aircraft I could fly. I see. So with just the Icelandic one, I could only fly Icelandic registered airplanes. Mm -hmm. With the JAA license, I could fly any European registered airplane. Mm. Um, so it all it really had to do with tail numbers and legalities. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So how long were you there before you were offered to do a flowback program? I was at Air Atlanta Icelandic around I mean, 20 months, right, right around 20 months period. So 20 months and, of yeah. going back and forth uh, yep. you know, to home and, and trying to you know, be an active participant in the family back yep. in the U.S. while working out of, out of England. That could not have been easy all that time. And that's yeah. a monstrous commute. How many hours is that? Well, by the, to get to St. Louis and into Centralia would take me the best part of about 18 hours from door to door. Wow. Uh, but, you know, losing six hours of time, gaining six hours of time. Um, again, my wife, she's been the rock of that. She put up with it. She managed the house while I was away. Um, she traveled over there to help me with the commute. Wow. Uh, but the fly-in that we got to do all over the world with Air Atlanta was, was some pretty amazing stuff. Some places I'd like to go back to and others, if I'm within 100 miles, it's too close. <laughs> I bet. 
So you got this call to do what is considered a flowback program. And I know there are a lot of aviators out there, especially some of these uh, younger aviators that are coming through the ranks now, that they probably know about what's going on with flowback, but really not understanding exactly how that program affected so many. Um, Can you give us a little bit of insight on how it benefited and maybe even uh, was an issue for you? Well, it certainly benefited me and allowed me to return to the United States as a captain and uh, be in the same hemisphere as my family. Um, It gave me the opportunity to build uh, some valuable time in the left seat at a U.S. airline. Um, For some of the first officers that were about to upgrade to captain, it delayed their upgrade for at least a couple of years that I was there. And so there was some uh, stunted movement at the, at the legacy airlines as well due to the furloughs, but at the regional airlines where there'd been a flowback program. Uh, so some to more, 99% of the first officers that I flew with were, were some of the most professional guys I got to fly with um, at the regionals, particularly at flowback time. And just a very small percentage made it a little bit hostile because they thought they should be in my seat. Totally understand that, you know. Invoking the uh, spirit of those senior flight engineers that would yeah. have laser beams coming out of their eyeballs looking yeah. at the back of the first officer's head. I, yeah. I, under, I understand. Yeah. I was at Sandpiper Regional, at least here yeah. at Legacy Airline, or yeah. at uh, Squawk Ident. This is what we're calling uh, the regional, Sandpiper Regional. Yeah. And then it's the same regional airline that you had your program to. Uh, That's correct. You, I think, were on your way out before. I was on my way in. I think you yeah, left. I think we missed. I think we missed each other by a couple of months. I yeah. left uh, in March two thousand and seven. Oh, so I was. There. Uh, I was probably in training though, because I I got okay. hired in December of two thousand and six. Yeah. So right. that's probably what it was. Um, yeah. And because I was based in Chicago too, so right. you know, we could have yeah. easily have crossed paths back then for sure. And yeah. so that that program didn't last very long. Uh, you were there how long? I was there two years, three months, and four days. Two, not that I was counting. Not that you were counting. <laughs> and you decided to go back to London after That's right. that stint. What yeah. caused that uh, decision? Well, I had two job offers at the time. Uh, one was to fly Captain 737 for Ryanair, uh, the Irish low-cost carrier in Europe. And there was a new start airline called Silverjet flying 767s from uh, London to Newark, all business class. Mm. And they were looking for people with 76 transatlantic experience. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I was hired direct entry captain in their first class. So um, great company, great product. Unfortunately, 2008, the downturn in the economy. They couldn't find enough uh, capital to get more aircraft. And so they, they ceased operations in, I think, June 2008. Okay. And then what happened in June 2008? I was looking for another job. Um, I interviewed with British Airways for their Open Skies division in Paris as a 7-5 captain. Uh, they offered me the job uh, to be based in Paris. 
And a month later, they decided they weren't getting that aircraft anymore. So I got another email rescinding that job. Ah. I got a job offer to fly a Global Express six months on, six months off. And in the economy, the guy decided not to get the aircraft. So that job was rescinded. And pulling a couple of strings with friends at uh, Gorjet, I was interviewed and offered a street captain job there, uh, or what they call captain qualified FO. Uh, based in St. Louis. So I lived 35 miles from St. Louis Airport. So even though the money wasn't great, uh, the company treated me well. And uh, I spent just over 12 months at GoJet before the second recall to American Airlines. Yeah. So, First recall. Yeah. So yeah. you got recalled uh, at yeah. the airline we, we refer to here at uh, Squawk Den <laughs> as Legacy Airlines. Yeah. Um, and so there you were uh, flying for legacy yet again this was yes. your first first recall, recall after yeah. the whole 9-11 yeah. uh, situation and what year yeah. was this where you where your first recall happened uh, that was 09 and 09 okay so I, yeah i was out six years almost exactly so you came back you went through the training program any hiccups yep. or any any or was it just like like riding a bicycle i would say that the Legacy Airline training program was very professional. I was treated very well. Um, yeah, the instruction was really good. And so it was actually quite a nice reintroduction to uh, flying at Legacy Airlines. Mm. But that lasted 12 months. Oh. And uh, due, due to a, um, um, a judge's decision to arbitrate a decision that uh, adversely affected 87 pilots at the Legacy, and uh, we were furloughed in March 2010. Wow. For the second time. So second furlough happens. And again, you find yourself scrambling to find employment. <laughs> what happened this time? <laughs> I was in recurrent training uh, at, a, at Legacy Airlines. And a young gentleman next to me who lives in Quito but works for Legacy said, I'm sorry to hear about that. I know the chief pilot at Copa Airlines. Would you be interested? Wow. Yeah, lucky. Yeah. Right place at the right time. I said, absolutely. Would love that opportunity. And four weeks later, I was in class at Copa. And were they flying 7.3s over there, or what were they flying? They were flying 7.3s and Embraer 190s. Ah. Uh, so I was hired into the left seat of the 737 based in Panama. Okay, and how long did that last? About 18 months. 18 months. Did you... Uh... Yeah. Did you have a place down there, or did you have a crash pad? Or? No, we, I lived in, um, right in the center of Panama City, downtown, in wow. El Cangrejo. Nice. So, and fun so place. I bet you have some stories about uh, enjoying the nightlife out there in Panama. I, yeah. I've, it's, uh, I've it's, heard stories how a, wonderful it is in a in different, different place, different uh, attitude, different... Uh, they see you as a pilot, and you're like a god you know it's not like over here oh you're you're like a glorified bus driver out here over there you're like oh captain oh right yes. away captain anything for you captain it it was uh it, the interaction with the flight attendants i always um, tell the story about where of course in the u.s i introduced myself and say yeah call me steve in panama i would introduce myself and said oh yeah call me steve okay captain oh you can call me steve okay captain <laughs> and no matter no matter how many times I would ask them to call me Steve, they always referred to either you call you Cappy, Captain, or Commander. 
and you could not change that. I like that. <laughs> it's it's different. Yeah. Well, a different mentality. You know, they have a, yeah. that hierarchy and, and yep. you know, and I know that that's true, not just for South America. It's true in many parts of the world where if you're an yep. airline pilot and you have four stripes, you... Yep. It just holds a respect uh, and an honor uh, that mm-hmm. is really treated, uh, I hate to say it, like royalty. You know, you're really treated with the white glove. Well, I think there's a certain respect that what, what it's taken to get to that seat and um, how hard you've had to work and how long you've had to wait for it to get to that point. And so where they say respect is earned and not given, I think in a lot of countries around the world uh, that understand that, that there is a lot of respect given to the airline captain. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's it's just different. Yeah. You know? Well, it's evolved into this different. You know, it used to be kind of that way. We talked about the golden age of flying yeah. all the time. You know, it's depicted in old movies yeah. like uh, you know, Catch Me If You Can, and you yeah. know being flanked by your flight crew with white gloves yep. and a hat, the pillbox hat. Gotcha. And, you know, it just, it was yep. a different time. It, 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 but yep. now things, uh, I don't know if we can say we've evolved into a more accepting society and then we're all more closer to the lines of equals. So, I mean, I guess it could be a good thing too. I don't want to make it sound like yep. I, I think that that's the way it should be even today. Yep. Uh, but it was a different time. And, and in so, some parts of the world, you know, that, that mentality is still ongoing. So it's enjoyed it's it's enjoyable to see it. It is. And I and I think, you know, a lot of the the the, uh, the captain respect is in the way you treat your passengers. For me. You know, if you treat them well and you look after them, they will look up to you as an individual. The one thing they don't do um, anymore, particularly in the mass transit system we live in these days in America, is just give you that respect immediately. Just because. You have to earn that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't mind that. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. And then I noticed that too when we flew together. Yeah. Uh, you know, most, I think most pilots, not just captains, but most pilots yeah. and flight crews alike, yeah. uh, flight attendants, yes. uh, gate agents and rampers, uh, yeah. station agents, they all, we all have this kind of pride. And I hate, I hate to say that too loud uh, because there are those at, uh, at every, airline employer uh but those at legacy airlines that like to get on uh, the socials and uh complain (laughs) a lot about things and people and you know that that negativity it just it it, it makes life kind of difficult why not why be so difficult and i really did enjoy flying with you because i saw that right away Uh, i think we even shared a comment that we have like personalities where you know we're here to have fun you know, let's just yeah. enjoy the flying together. Let's enjoy the experience, the place, the people. Yeah. So, yeah. but your your experience at uh, in Panama, yes, it it uh, evolved into another recall at Legacy Airlines. That's uh, correct. That was for what 2011, some mid towards the end. Yeah, about 2012. Oh, actually, 2012. Yeah. And that, yeah. how long were you there for that time? Well, I was. Well, I was at Copa for about 18 months and then came back in 2012. And I think I'd been back three months and they filed for bankruptcy. Uh. And the threat was they were going to furlough the 400 most junior uh, pilots. 
So I interviewed in Miami for two airlines in China and went over and did the flight test in Tianjin for OK Airlines and was offered a position. And I'd spent two weeks in Beijing um, getting all the paperwork straight. And uh, when I came back to um, the U.S. to continue my job until I actually had the job offer mm -hmm. with all the visas, um, something went on. I had a, an issue. I, I had to take 12 months off uh, from flying. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was a, a minor medical issue that I had that just once you put your foot down a rabbit hole, um, other issues came up. And it took me 12 months to get all that cleared. Yeah. But the downside of that is uh, 10 months of that was based on the test they were sending me for. I had an allergic reaction to the, uh, the chemical in the dye that they were pumping in me to do the, the x-rays and the MRIs. Hmm. So that's so what was, kept me out. It was Nothing a, wrong with Yeah, it was a fluke thing. You went yep. to go have an interview and a medical uh, exam yep. performed and part of their procedure you know, botched, you know, because yep. of your allergic reaction to the to chemicals, botched your medical yep. and, and you had a fight to get that back. And, yep. and we've, we've talked about this a few times here at, at Squawk yep. Ident. And, you know, this is a topic that, you know, in the future, I'd like to, to dive into. Um, yep. You know, we've always said it, if you come up with some kind of issue medically, uh, before you go to, you know, an FA doctor or an FA medical procedure, uh, find out before. Call your yes. FA examiner. Call a flight surgeon. Call your local FISDO to get that contact information and start asking questions. In your case, it really wasn't anything you could do. You had an allergic reaction to a to a interview procedure. Yeah. You know. Yes. And you had to fight to get that back. So, and there's another warning. You're, you know, here you are, relatively healthy guy, and all of a sudden you lose your medical, and yep. you were out of work for quite some time. Always have a backup plan. Always have a financial safety net. Um, Correct. For those pilots that, especially at the beginning of their careers, they just spent thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, to become a pilot. Now they're fighting to stay afloat financially, although that isn't really the case as much today as it was even five to 10 years ago. Yeah. And they're living paycheck to paycheck. And if something That's goes great. wrong, it could it could change your career path completely. Yep. Um, so you were fortunate that you were able to get that all cleared up, and you came back to Legacy Airlines. Did you go directly to the Airbus, or how, how did you come back? No, I came back. Um, I went to the seven three seven in Miami. Mm. Um, Twelve months later, I went to the seven six seven in Miami. I did the long haul down to South America for two years. Decided that wasn't for me anymore, and then I went to the bus. Hmm. So I've been on the bus three and a half years now. And our meeting was really, you know, we were talking about right place, right time, chance encounters. Yep. Yep. You were, you're not even LA based, and yet no. here we are having the opportunity to fly together because yep. of it was an involuntary TDY, was it? No, I I volunteered because volunteer. a friend of mine, yeah, he had he had children that he wanted to stay home with, and so I took one for him. Huh. We've been we've known each other since '95. So instead oh. of him doing the TDY, you you volunteered for him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow. What a what a outstanding gesture. 
So here we are, yeah, and we... you got to fly with me, the Aviator Tony. Yay! Hey, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and we had a Phoenix overnight. Uh, and I remember we, you know, you said, hey, let's let's get together after, you know, we get in, get settled, and go grab yeah. a bite. And yeah. you had suggested that we stop at this place called, uh, was it Cornish? The Cornish Pasty. Pasty, yes. Yeah. Uh, amazing place in in downtown phoenix i think i talked a little bit about that in the show that i recorded right after that uh amazing i gave a little history on it Uh, i went into the website that you had suggested and uh and yeah so we've we've flown together now just two days hit it off and you know you agreed to come on the show which i greatly appreciate because your story is absolutely amazing now i wanted to ask you just a few questions if i could um, to talk about some of the biggest challenges and hurdles. Your story is filled with challenges, but can you narrow that down for us? Uh, maybe what was like the, if you had to say one of the biggest things or biggest hurdles that you had to overcome throughout your profession, what would that be? Well, I think the biggest hurdle was to overcome um, the, the town in which I was born and raised in, in England was very uh, would we call it blue collar class in the United States? We call it, you know, working class. Mm-hmm. Union union members worked at a factory nine till five, came home, and and trying to get out of that was was probably the hardest hurdle to get because you with like minded people that their idea of leaving school is to go and get a job at the factory, and, and you do that your whole life, and then you retire and you know go to the pub and drink a few beers and, and whatever you do. Yeah. You know, I didn't. I didn't think like that. I always, always wanted to draw white lines in the sky. And, and the hardest thing was, with no, not knowing anybody who was a pilot, how did I do that? It didn't help that I didn't bother taking my exams at school. Uh, you know, there had to be another way around it. And, and so that for me was probably the hardest thing to get past. Um, I think the second one was the first furlough. Uh, was really tough. Not knowing what to do, not knowing what was out there, not knowing you know, how to look after the family, and and ending up being you know flying on contract in London, you know four and a half thousand miles away from home. I, I think probably if it hadn't been for Tracy supporting that decision and and really getting stuck in and coming over there and and, and being with me sometimes, I probably would have quit that in a few months, but. So I would say probably them two things: the first foilo and actually getting out of the the working class environment in uh, in Oldham. Mm. Yes. And so your your career progression, the yeah. positions you've maintained over the years, your jobs, yeah. the airlines you worked for. If you had to pick one airline, one experience, uh, with absolutely no fault if you don't choose legacy airlines, yeah. but uh, if you had to pick one airline that was like probably your favorite time, favorite job, what would that be? Uh, I really enjoyed my time with TWA. It was, it was the first legacy airline that I flew for. But by far and away, the best job I ever had was at Silverjet. Uh, the all business class carrier in Luton. It was a small company. Uh, we, everybody knew every. I could walk into the uh, the CEO's office, Lawrence Hunt, and complain about something that had gone on, and he would listen. Uh, the product was amazing. Uh, they treated their crews exceptionally well. 
everything that we gave the customer. We guaranteed if you arrived at the gate or the door of the airport 20 minutes before an international departure, that you would get on the plane. Yeah. That, that was the guarantee. And yeah, we're paying a price. I mean, anywhere between three and $5,000 for a ticket one way. But the product was second to none. And the people that were there were all the same type of go-getters and, and do anything and make sure that everybody was doing the job correctly, but enjoying doing their job. Yeah. You know, uh, they believed that the front-end staff were the most important people in, in the business because they interacted directly with the customer. Yeah, absolutely they um, are. Yeah. yeah. So everything that we needed to do our jobs, we were given. So that was great. Yeah. Only lasted 18 months, but that was probably the best job I've ever had. Yeah. That environment, I, I can see yeah. how it would uh, foster some very positive uh, feelings about it. So you've, you've have all this time in airplanes and yep. types and in carriers and in countries, yeah. and you've had to have had more than your fair share of in-flight emergencies. What would you say was the most challenging? The most challenging one that I had was at Sandpiper Airlines. Huh. I was flying from Bangor, Maine, 500 overcast, heavy rain, thunderstorms around the airport. My first officer, it was his first leg after OE. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and just on takeoff, we got the, um, the laugh smoke alarm. Mm. Uh, red, big red, ding, 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 fire on board light. And uh, for about the first 20 seconds, uh, he was caught like a deer in the headlights. Uh, about 10 seconds later, I said, hey, take a deep breath. We're going to turn around and land. Um, I'll fly the plane. I'll talk to the um, controllers. You just talk to the flight attendant in the bank, see what's going on. But we're just going to go left, left, left and land. So he started, called for the checklist. About a minute into it, he became so relaxed. Uh, and we were on the ground in seven minutes. Wow. And uh, I was a little bit worried at first that he wouldn't get past the startle uh, factor. But I got to say, he did a tremendous job for a, somebody with 400 hours experience. Wow. 400 hours. Uh, that, that, uh, that could be very intimidating. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, so you know, your, your type ratings and your aircraft flown list is extensive do you have a favorite yes. 757 and why that's like a sports car you gotta fly it i mean it demands your respect it's got so much power you can do you're not worried about losing an engine on takeoff you're not worried about landing on a short runway i used to take it into a greek airport island airport was 5200 feet long with 230 passengers on it wow and we just say it laughs at short runways. So just a, the performance on it was second to none. Yes. And I, do I understand correctly, the 7.5, is that an aircraft, at least I know a legacy, that they're starting to phase out because of that's total that's time? That's correct. Yeah. That's yeah. a shame. Unfortunately, you know, the 7.8 is really not a replacement for it because 7.8 no. is, you know, a heavy that's doing international and you know, especially at uh, the, our bases, respective bases, they're doing long haul stuff on there, and that's it. That's that's correct. Yeah. So your flight, tra you've had a lot of flight training over the years. Yes. I, I, I'd venture to say you've had 
five, six times more flight training than, than most because of all the changes in, in your career yeah. progression. Uh, yeah. What are the probably the few of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome in that? Uh, I think the biggest challenge was when I went to um, the UK to fly the 7-6 because I came rated and on and current. Um, you went from doing a very basic in-dock class, two simulator rides, then your PC, one loft, and then the next day you were doing line training where you got two legs and that was it. Wow. They expected you to come. So it, that was the hardest thing to try and ingrain yourself with all the information you needed to fly for a new company. Mm. So they really expect you to come prepared. Absolutely. Yeah. Up and running. Now, we had a few conversations uh, when flying together about you know, the differences in the generational gaps between pilots in the cockpit. Uh, yeah. And sometimes that can be an issue. Other times it's really a non-issue. Uh, what do you see as some of the biggest hurdles when you have a very senior captain flying with a very young, very junior FO? I, I think sometimes the very senior captains have lost a little bit of uh, real-life experience. Most of them have never been furloughed. Most of them have never done anything other than be a pilot. And it's difficult for them to look down in the right seat and see this new up-and-coming 28, 29-year-old guy with, he's thinking, oh, he's not paid his dues, he hasn't done this, and he hasn't done that. But in real fact, it's the captain in the left seat who's had more of an easy ride than, than the guy in the right seat. Um, I think sometimes, for me personally, because of my life experience, you know, I try and look at the person in the right seat and ask, what can I learn from him? Because it's a different perspective. And I think there's always more than at least more than one way to look at something. And obviously, more often not, more than two or three ways to look at the same problem and come up with an answer. Uh, so, yeah, experience divide can intimidate the first officer. But I think it can sometimes give the guy in the left seat a little bit too much confidence that he's always right. So you've now that you're you know, comfortable in the left seat at Legacy Airlines, yep. you're for sure at this point unless a, a huge disaster happens i think you're golden <laughs> i don't see any furloughs on the horizon at least uh like i said unless something major event happens um so here you are you're flying with a lot of new hires i mean we're we're just got so many retirements happening in the next yep. you know now and for the foreseeable future so many retirements and so many new hires coming through, not just at Legacy Airlines, but at all of the legacy carriers in the United States. And yep. if you could give a blanket statement type of advice to a new legacy pilot, what do you think the best advice you could give him would be? Take a deep breath. Look at the future. Ask yourself, do you want money? Or do you want quality of life? Yeah. And make a decision on which aircraft, which base, which seat that you want based on the answer to that question. Yeah. I think if you go for the money, you're going to miss out at home. 
I think right now uh, we get paid well, and I think you can have a good life with what we earn. I think we have to get some of the quality of life issues fixed at the, the legacy airlines. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's funny that you say that because I've said it before, years past, um, and I still feel the same way. If somebody would have sat down with me my first few years flying for a 121 operator and said to me, don't chase the polyester, don't chase the fourth stripe, don't yep. chase the bigger airplane. Instead, yep. pick your pick your goal and always have the quality of life trump everything else. Um, I think my career progression would have been different. I don't know if it would have been better, but it definitely would have been different. And because I commuted for 13 years off and on. Yep. Um, and I'm not saying that I had a terrible commute because I've heard commute stories from people coming from the other side of the, the planet to, to commute to work where they work for yep. seven to 14 days and then go back for five to six and then come back. And, and it's yep. just, it's time that for me, it wasn't too bad. It was about a three and a half to four and a half hour flight, uh, each way every week. And I would read and, you know, catch up on you know, work and, yeah. and watch movies in the back of the airplane and more if I was in the cockpit jump seat, then I was paying attention and yes. figuring it, things out. And then as I came to legacy airlines, you know, when they asked me during my indoctrination, what airplane do you want? I had no doubt because I had time in the cockpit of, of everything that they were flying at that time. So yep. it made my decisions a little better. So I did have many positive aspects of commuting, but I also had many negative aspects. Uh, you commuted as well for quite some time. Do you have a commuter horror story that you'd like to share? <laughs> well, not a commuter uh, horror story that America for flying. Yeah, I was working for the um, the flight school. Went to Mumbai in India and looking for business. I got a call halfway through that and said, "Hey, we'd like you to go to Indonesia as well." So I went to Indonesia after that, and coming back was a horror story. Got to Singapore, missed the flight, ended up spending 18 hours at Changi Airport, flew from Singapore to Mumbai, missed the airplane, spent 24 hours at Mumbai, which is not fun. And I went from, was it Mumbai to Frankfurt, missed the airplane. Then from Frank Frankfurt, Cincinnati, Cincinnati, St. Louis, I didn't miss that airplane, but the whole experience took almost five days to get home. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that you were uh, grossly compensated. Uh, no, nope, <laughs> no, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> uh, all about getting more more students so we could get more flight time. Yeah, and so you were you were looking for international contracts with yes. for student pilots, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, listening to your story, I could we could sit here all day and and hear the adventures from your career uh and you know your philosophies on staying positive and and you know earning the respect by giving the respect. I mean, it's so appreciative to fly with someone with such a, a healthy personality and perspective on life. Well, thank you. You know, oh, thank you. I mean, the stories are great. Uh, you know, and I look forward to flying with you again 
uh, and and hearing more about them. You know, unfortunately, you're based in Miami. I'm based in in LA, and uh, you know that that kind of hinders the opportunities to fly together. But I, I'm confident that in the future, we'll, our our paths will cross again. Well, you know, every time you're in uh, in Miami on a layover, just, just let me know. And if I'm in at my apartment, we'll come down and uh, share a couple of beers. Absolutely. And you know what? Yeah. I'm going to take you up on that offer. Yeah. Very yeah. much. Well, uh, Captain Stephen Ash, I thank you for uh, spending the time with us here today on Squawk Ident. I appreciate you sharing your journey with us. And uh, is there any final thoughts you'd like to give the listeners out there? Sure. If you don't have to fly into Djibouti, don't fly into Djibouti. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very well heated, uh, you know, uh, advice for sure. Well, again, Steve, thank you so much for spending the time with us here today. And we look forward to hearing more about your stories, possibly in the near future. Hey, you never know. Nice flying with you, Anthony. I'll see you sometime in the near future, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Squawk Ident. I had a wonderful time speaking with Captain Ash about his journey in aviation, and I hope you enjoyed the stories that he told about his adventures. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? Please visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. There, you can check out episode cover art that is unique for each independent episode that is created by myself, Aviator Tony. We also have episode archives, a pilot shop, and now you can also leave audio feedback in the Contact Us tab. You can also contribute to the show and help us with much-needed equipment and software, marketing expenses, and whatnot by becoming a producer of Squawk Ident, either with a one-time donation or a monthly contribution, and that can be found on the front page. And now, check out the Flightline Photos tab, where we post some pretty cool shots that we are able to capture from the Flightline. And Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter followers can follow Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you like what you hear, please take a moment and like, leave a review, and share the show with someone you might think would enjoy Squawk Ident. On behalf of myself and the rest of the Squawk Ident crew, thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other. (laughs) 